0: And in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days Disrepresentation of stall brewing that The focus remains the vocal focal point of my team Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chettam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this episode is brought to you by Koros. Koros is the GPS watch that I love and trust. I got this baby two weeks ago. And let me tell you, it is unbelievable. I am not kidding. I'm looking at my watch right now. I put it on for the first time. I think it was nine days ago, 10 days ago. And I'm clicking through the watch. I have 22% battery left. I haven't recharged it. I've only charged it once. It was 10 days ago. I put it on nine days ago. I have run five times using the GPS functionality. And I still have 22% battery life. This watch is insane with the with the GPS battery life. Please give Coros a try. Also, unlike many other watches, they are good on the track. That's right. If you have a GPS watch, you know how hard it can be to get a good reading on the track. In fact, you shouldn't even use it on the track because it doesn't work. It doesn't help at all. In fact, it just makes things more confusing. Coros, on the other hand, does work on the track, which is so exciting. So go to Koros.com. That's C O R O S dot com to learn more so today's episode is with jen miller man i could not wait to get jen miller on the podcast she wrote a great book running a Mem- running i'm oh, sorry <laughs> running a love story which is a memoir for her um with that said she's actually um sometimes you think memoir you think of someone who's kind of reached the end of their life who's now about to impart all this knowledge on you jen is actually my age and is uh you know basically gratefully, and thankfully, put out this fantastic book. I loved it so much. And with that being said, I couldn't wait to have her on the show, not only to talk about this book that I really, really enjoyed, but also just to talk about what she's done from a freelance writing perspective, what it actually means to put out a book. Because I just think the whole process is interesting. She has done so much in the running community, not only as a runner, but as a writer. And like so many of the people who listen to this show – she works for herself as a freelance journalist. I know a lot of you either do work for yourself in some capacity or strive to do so. So we touched on a lot of that as well. So it's kind of a wide-ranging podcast episode. I really enjoyed it. Also, just a heads up, Jen curses many times on this episode. So again... I have no problem with that, but I do want to let you know, because if you happen to be listening to this while you're in the car with your kiddos or you're, you know, in your house and you're playing it on your speakers, you might want to put this one on the headphones. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jen Miller. Hello, Jen, and welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. You are one of, you are unfortunately one of the victims of my combined flu and pneumonia. We we're supposed to do this last week. So I appreciate you, you know, taking the time and, and your flexibility to move this back a week or so because I was so excited to chat. I loved your book, Running a Love Story, 10 Years, Five Marathons and One Life-Changing Sport. You put out a you know, weekly um, newsletter through the New York Times. You do a lot of freelancing work in general. When you released this book, what was the, what were the feelings around it? And, you know, and I say, that, I say kind of compare and contrast. It feels like to have this, you know, be put out into the world as opposed to, you know, one of your freelance pieces or your weekly newsletter or things along those lines.
1: Well, the funny thing is um, this book came out a couple of years ago and it's still selling. So thank you everybody who has purchased it and will purchase it. I hope after listening to me, cause I'm always hustling. Um, I wasn't writing the New York Times running column yet because it didn't exist. Um, I was writing a weekly column for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I live in New Jersey in a suburb of Philadelphia. And, you know, I sometimes wrote about my life in running, but it was more reported stuff. When this came out, um, the reaction was, oh, shit, I didn't know this about you. Um, I I sort of think people didn't know what to expect. Everyone in my family thought it was like a running guide. Um, It got... Mostly good reviews, but it got one bad one because the person said it wasn't like you're reporting and I said, "What's well, a memoir it's totally different um, <laughs> a lot of the, another person didn't like the ending and again, it's memoir like or she didn't like what happened I, Well, it's it's nonfiction what would you like me to do lie um there was some nervousness about it because it does get really personal and there were things that happened that I had never told anyone before. Um, But the New York Times ran an excerpt of it two or three weeks before publication. And that sort of took a lot of the stress out of the actual publication date because once that was out, it was like, oh, this is what this book was about. And the night before the excerpt ran, I actually had a nightmare that the person that the excerpt is about came into my bedroom and there were runners behind him dressed in fluorescent clothing and they were going to stab me. Like, what? (laughs) What?
0: (laughs) I love how they're like, they're like not trying to hide themselves. They're purposely glowing (laughs) in this, in this dream slash nightmare. They're like, they're not sneaking up at all. They're literally like, I am trying to be reflective. So you and everyone else can see me do this.
1: It's like high vis fluorescent highlighter, yellow and pink vests. And then I woke up and I went, ah, and um, then after that, the, the excerpt came out. It was sort of out in the world and it was, it was, you know, it was a boulder running down the hill nobody could stop it. And, um, you know, my dad was surprised. My mom was surprised. My brother thought I was sponsored by Dunkin' Donuts because I put in there that it was what I drank before running a race to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Um, but otherwise, yeah, it was fine. And then it was out. And then, um, I got to meet people who read it, which was, which was more exciting than writing it. I think, um, just that it made a, it's made an impact on people's lives. I had some some folks showing up at book signings, and they just looked at me and started crying, and I didn't know what to do. So if they let me, I hugged them. You know, I'm that. That was like, I've. This is my third book. I've never had anything like that happen before. So it was, it was uh, something.
0: Yeah, I can imagine it being a very scary scenario where not only are you putting something out in the world that maybe you know other people don't know about, but when you do it, maybe you know. A, a either a story or an opinion that's related to someone that you care about that's in the book. And you're like, okay, what are they going to do when they hear this? What was that self-editing process like for you in terms of what to include, maybe what not to include, and the things that are kind of like right on the border between those two?
1: Well, I I wrote it without thinking about that. I mean, you just just have to. You have to I mean, most of this book, I locked myself in hotel rooms and just wrote it and then dealt with the consequences after the fact. Um, What happened in editing was there were certain things that were on the line that I thought, does this make the story better or am I including it because it happened and it means something to me? And there were some things that I took out because while they were significant to me personally, they added nothing to the story. No, I mean, nobody – I mean, I guess if I had included some of these things, they might have been interesting, but they sort of got in the way of the main story of the running story. So I took them out. Um, the other thing that happens when you write a memoir, and I assume lots of other kinds of books, is you have a you have the legal edit, which is when a lawyer reads it and tells you all the ways you can be sued, which is super fun. Um, and a lot of that is they ask you, is your family going to sue you? And... I can't imagine a situation in which my family would do that because I know my family and we're fairly close. But I did have conversations with each family member about, here's what I included in this book about you. And um, it was pretty much okay. Some stuff, you know, it was a difficult conversation. But then by the time the book came out, it didn't matter. I'd already had those, those talks. Um, there are three uh, men in this book, I'd say major men. I don't know. That sounds, makes them sound like they're in the army and they're not. And, um, two of them, I no longer speak to for reasons that'll probably be obvious in the book. The third one, I actually interviewed him. I had him come to my house and sat down and interviewed him. Um, and he was the one I actually was worried most about getting litigious. And, um, after I talked to him about it, he said it was okay and he never read it. And that's his choice. Um, so there's a, there's a process and and an editor might say, should you include more here? Should you cut this out? Um, you know, there's multiple people involved in helping you figure out what to include and whatnot. Ultimately the decision came down to me and I'm the one who made the final calls.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and that, I really appreciate you explaining that process because when you hear or not hear, well, for me, it's hearing because a lot of times I listen to audiobooks, but you know, when you read or hear about a book that has these sorts of sections in them, my mind always goes there of like, I can't like, putting myself in the author's place of like, and this is what I included about you. And that person maybe who may, might not be as self-aware or doesn't remember it that way, being like, whoa, Nellie, I can't even imagine. But I, I can see that being a difficult thing. And one of the things that, especially early on in the book, where, you know, I kind of threw up, but there, there are certainly points in the book where you talk about kind of your attraction or lack of attraction, to running and kind of how you picked it up as you went along. And, you know, obviously no one's running life cycle is, you know, to mix my metaphors is linear in a sense, but there seemed to be points where you were running as a response to something else or somebody else, as opposed to just running for yourself and your own, you know, your own internal motivations and things along those lines. When you were going through the book, did you did you segment it in that way at all, or, or think about think about you know the reasons for running and you know why it has such a, a major part in in areas of your life?
1: It, it's interesting because the way that I had originally written the book before I sold it is not the way that the book appears now. Um, and that's that's very common that you write a whole book proposal and you put in sample chapters and none of that ever sees the light of day. Originally, the book was going to be a straight narrative starting from I hated running in sixth grade or whatever it is until I ran the 2013 New Jersey Marathon. It was going to start with my first runs and end at the finish line. and. I had two people reading it as I wrote it, two friends. One was a male runner and a female non runner because I wanted, to, I knew this book was going to be marketed to women who run. And I wanted to make sure that it was something that more people than that would, would run, would be able to read and understand. And their first comments, both of them were, you got to get to the running sooner. Like you, you talk about, You know, you're working up to the running, but this is a book about running. People are going to want to see you run sooner. And I sort of stamped my foot and said, fine. And I said, I'm going to start at the starting line of the New Jersey Marathon. And that ended up being a way to figure out how to form this narrative. And so what ended up happening is each chapter starts, as you know, but for people who haven't read it, please buy my book, each chapter is a segment of that race. And as the race moves forward, my running story moves forward. And I ended up segmenting the running stories by races. Um, My first 5K, my first half marathon, things that were landmark races to me that just so happened to have coordinated with moments in my life. Um, There were other races that were really important to me. But, you know, you got to form a narrative when you write a book like this. And that's just the way that – I know it sounds. Comp- it might sound complicated, but it worked out really well. And, and, you know, people seemed to like it. And it got to the running right away. It was right at the starting line. So <laughs> at the start of the book.
0: There you go. I love that. So did your feelings towards running change at all through the writing of this book? Sure. Um, you know, when I sold the book to a
1: publisher – I was writing for Runner's World. I was a, you know, running columnist in a major metropolitan newspaper. So there was a lot of reasons why and I thought I guess they liked the writing and the proposal about why I should write this book and why people would buy it. And it was one of those things that in I hadn't it seems weird to say I hadn't thought about it that much. But when you shine this kind of microscope on your your own life, and why you do this thing, of course your feelings about it are going to change. And you don't want your revelations in writing it to affect how you how you say that you perceived running at the time. I don't know if that makes sense. So realizing that I run for these reasons, I didn't want it to affect the way I saw running when I was training for my first 5K. Um, and the other thing that was sort of interesting about writing this project that reflected on a, a significant period of my life was there were things about my life that I didn't realize until I wrote it all out and put it into this one document um, after the book came out I um, cut back on drinking because I saw that this was another theme in the book that wasn't supposed to be there but I saw oh you drink too much this is part of your life you need to stop that um, which after I turned in the book I did I mean I, I'm not I'm not so let me see if I don't not drink. I rarely drink now. So that was probably the biggest revelation for me personally, even though people reading it, obviously, you know, that's not something that they would necessarily pick up on. I don't know if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And once I can see being aware of the process affecting how you view other things, right? Like, you know, I think about like someone who say like directs movies, trying to watch a movie for fun. It's like, you know, you hear the people talk about like they, they just can't do it because they can't turn that part of their brain off. And you express something a little differently in terms of like, in terms of recollection of like not wanting your current state of mind to taint what your past state of mind may have been or, you know, what you're feeling in those moments, which obviously is what you want to chronicle and, you know, and, and archive in a sense uh, with with something like this.
1: Right. And it helped that. I was writing about running as I was learning to be a runner. So I had all of this, I I don't want to say historical documents, but I did. I had my, I ran my first 5k because a magazine paid me to. And I had all of those notes um, from my training. And I wrote a blog post about running the Chicago, the 2012 Chicago marathon. I had all of that stuff. So I had the recollections from the time. And sometimes I'd read it and I didn't remember that happening. So, um, so I had those notes of stuff that I don't remember happening, but I had it lucky me. Um, so that sort of made the process a little bit easier, but of course, you know, I am talking to you now I've, the time this book came out, I'd run five marathons. I've run 11 now and I've run two ultra marathons. So even trying to think of the space that I was writing this book is different than me looking at it right now. Um, You know, people want me to write another running book and I say I have nothing left to say. You know, I'm in a different place right now. But um, anyway, I'm rambling. Well, you're the rambling runner, so why does it matter?
0: See, this is the home. This is the home for that sort of thing, Jen.
1: (laughs) I know. It's just, I, I, you know, at the time the book came out, it came out in 2016. I ended up touring for the book on and off for over a year. And I just got asked if I wanted to do a book event in Reading, Pennsylvania. And I thought, I don't even know what I would say just because it's so different. And I was so in that space for so long and now I'm not. So I haven't thought about it in a while. This is your fault. <laughs> <laughs> but I am working on what I hope is going to be another book. And I'm sort of confronting the same thing of what my headspace was at the time that things happened and, and my perception of it now.
0: So what made you want to write the book when you did? Obviously, there Money. are certain kinds I'm of kidding. memoirs. Money, there you go. Because there's certain kinds of memoirs, right? There's like the... <laughs> There's the end of the timeline memoir, right, encapsulating everything that has happened. And then it's like the, the last word on this subject or person. And then yours, which is obviously almost like the Augustine Burroughs version, which is like that midlife, you know, potentially sporadic memoir, which can kind of, you know, can encapsulate certain periods of time, but not the total story.
1: So the reason this book happened is because of a, a spectacular failure and the story gets bad and then it gets worse before it gets better. Um, I had written uh, a piece in 2013 for the New York Times about training with the Hanson's marathon method. And I, from what I understand was the first journalist to go through it. If you don't know, it's really hard for an amateur runner, especially one who's a four something marathoner, you know, running 65 miles a week when you run my pace, that's a lot of time on your feet. And I did it for the New York Times. And I wrote about it. It ended up being part of the book. But an editor at a really large publishing house, prestigious name, read the piece and reached out to me and said, I want you to write a book for me. And like there was much celebrating because when does that happen, right? And she said, here's my idea. You need to go write a proposal. I said, well, I know this agent. She's like, she's great. Hire her. So I went out and I wrote this proposal. And writing a book proposal is – It's a lot of effort for which you're not paid um, unless you sell the book. And I had put aside other of my freelance work to work on this and did all this research and interviewed these people and wrote up this big thing. And they said, well, you know, that's fine. Keep going because you're going to get this big payday with a book. And then I turned it in and the editor said, well, okay, you wrote the – you have to write sample chapters. Well, you wrote these, but I want to see these. So I had to go back and write two more sample chapters, which, you know – That's a lot more work. And then I turned it in again and she went, oh, I guess it's not really a good idea. Thanks. Oh. And then the agent who I had at the time said, we should be flattered that she asked. Now, I was not flattered. (laughs) I was really mad (laughs) because it's not like I was doing this on the side while I had a full time job. You know, I lost about $10,000 worth of work to work on this thing. So I told the agent, well, send it out. Send it out to other editors. Let's just sell it to somebody and it'll be a big success and screw that lady. And so she said she did. And then I saw her posting pictures on Facebook of her at home in the middle of the day. So I sent her an email. I said, hey, blank, what's going on with the book? And she said, oh, I guess I didn't tell you I quit being an agent to be a stay-at-home mom. Oh, man. Now, I'm not judging her decision, of course. I have friends who are stay-at-home moms. However, if you're going to quit your job to do that, maybe you should tell your clients. I have never been so angry about anything in my entire life because I felt used. I felt like I was run over. I sat – I laid in the bathtub and turned, like, the shower on and just, like, laid there until my whole body was a big prune. So I said I was never going to write a book ever again unless somebody came to my house and knocked on the door and handed me a big bag of cash. Um, So what I did instead was I had a a writer friend who wanted to write more personal essays and I've been writing personal essays and publishing them since I was 18. So we started this project where we'd write an essay and then swap them and then edit them and give feedback. And then we try to sell them. And I kept writing essays about running. And some of them I sold to the New York Times. Some of them I put in the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I thought, well, there's like a theme here. Of all of this stuff. Running's really popular right now. I have not a, a column in a newspaper. Maybe I should try to write a book. And I did. And that's how it happened. Ta-da!
0: Wow. Look at that. So do you think that you would have written this book if that first failed book proposal attempt hadn't happened? I don't know. I don't want to thank that woman. Right, right.
1: <laughs> for doing that. And it's funny. Um, she considered this running book and I didn't want her to. Like she called me and she said, I'm surprised you're taking this phone call right now. And I said, you know what? So am I. Because um, I didn't want to do it with her. But that's a whole other thing I don't want to get into because that's getting into other stuff that's not about running. Um, but, you know, I guess it worked out. People liked it. You read it. And here we are.
0: There you go. So let's talk about being an, you know being an everyday runner you know and, and i am one of those as well and you know basically everyone who's listening to this podcast falls into that category too so being an everyday runner but having a running life or lifestyle that is very public because that is not a position that many people find themselves in what are some of the pros and cons of putting yourself out there in that way while maybe not having the kind of race results that in and themselves would garner that kind of attention?
1: Positives. I've met a lot of really cool people. I've interviewed a lot of really cool people. I find that professional runners are super nice and not just because I'm going to write about them. I find that professional athletes are in general nicer than sub-elites. <laughs> There are some sub-elites who are just, we call them fast holes because it, there was a whole issue when I was when I was reporting for the Philadelphia Inquirer that the Broad Street Run, which is one of the largest races in the country, it's a 10-mile race in Philadelphia, started using a lottery because it had gotten too big, too fast, and it seemed, I mean, I think like 80% of the people get in through the lottery, and there were a whole bunch of people who told me, well, if you can't run a 10-minute mile, you don't deserve to be there, and my response was... What event are you running in the Olympics? <laughs> and then I never heard from them again. So what? But on the flip side, almost every professional athlete I've ever spoken to is very nice, very kind. They recognize that that I do what they do on like a physical level, even if I'm very slow. I had one person I interviewed tell me that she thought we were inversed, in that I was a professional writer who ran, and she was a professional runner who wrote. What I thought was very interesting. Um I do get invited to run a lot of races. I can't take those um because of the New York Times ethics policies, I can't take freebies. Um I've been invited to run marathons all over the world at no expense, but we can't do that because that's not right. Um I can pay for races that are otherwise closed. I don't know if that makes sense. So if I wanted to run Boston I could say, hey, please let me run Boston. Here's some money. Like, here's the registration fee, and that's totally fine. That's how when people ask me if I'm going to run the New York City Marathon this year, I'm like, I'll decide in in September. (laughs) Um, So that's definitely a nice thing. I got to go in a nice tent before the New York City Marathon. And because I was running with my mother, it was her first marathon ever. I got to bring her, too. So you know i i wasn't going to go in and just leave her outside
0: <laughs> welcome to marathoning the hard way mom <laughs> the
1: the i ran the i ran the new york city marathon in 2017 and and for that race we were in this like tent with you know plastic sides and it was clear and i didn't want to like i could just see my mom like banging on the outside and me going i don't know i can't let you in <laughs> so that i mean that was you know, and, and for me to even do that, for for me to say, you know, the New York Roadrunner said, do you want to run the marathon? And I said I would, but I didn't enter the lottery. It had to go in front of like the ethics folks at the New York Times that I could still pay for a bit. Like they're that serious about it. They saw it sort of, I believe what they decided it was like taking a concert, like a concert ticket to review a concert. Um, so that's cool. Um, I will run races and get recognized, which is cool okay. Um, what I generally say, cause people ask me sometimes on Twitter or, you know, they see me after a race and I didn't know if I could come up to you and talk to you. If I'm wearing a New York times shirt, fair game. You can say whatever you want. You can interrupt me. Totally fine. If I'm not leave me alone. <laughs> um, cause I'm a regular, you know, I'm a runner too. Like sometimes I want to just be part of the crowd. I want to run my race. I don't want to talk to anybody. I think there's a, There's a part in this book that shows like before a race, I don't want to talk to anybody, anybody. If I'm really trying for a time, I want to be left alone. Well, if somebody knows who I am, that doesn't happen. Um, Usually. Sometimes I get interrupted. Sometimes I don't. The weird thing that's happened is I had an incident last year that I actually told the company that it was inappropriate. If I say I'm going to be at a race and you see me, totally fine. I was going to run a race in New York City, not—it's a media race. It's just—it's very informal. Um, the timing is someone on their iPhone. Like it's not—it's just for bragging rights. Essentially, it's fun. Like it's New York Times, it's HBO, it's some of the cable channels. We fight. We don't really fight. And then we have pizza and beer, and it's great. Um, but I don't say that I'm going to go to those because I just want to be part of my team because I'm on the New York Times Run Club. And a PR person asked the team captain if I was going to be there. And said we were working on a story together. And we were not. And I didn't want to see this person. Like I, I, I thought that was really weird and creepy actually. Um, that, you know, I don't know this person. You're asking around if I'm going to be at an event I haven't said I'm going to be at. And you're lying about like your connection to me. I don't, I didn't know this person. And I ended up not going because I was that creeped out. Like that, that's not cool. And I told the company what happened and they said – they apologized and said it was a misunderstanding. And I'm like, no, not really. It's stalking. And that was it. So that kind of stinks. But it is what it is.
0: And when you have individuals you – know, you described this on your book tour, people coming up to you and just crying, which obviously is very emotional for them. This doesn't really need to be said. But I'm assuming that when you get those kinds of responses either in person or you know through email and you know different mm-hmm. other – you know, other, you know, mediums of communication. What's it like for you when you have people that not only connect to the things that you are writing about, but who seemingly connect to you personally?
1: Um, I can't blame them. I mean, I'm a fan of writers too. It it has given me a different perspective on that in that I might read someone's memoir, but I have no idea what kind, like, I don't know them sort of thing. Where before I might think, oh, I read three of your books. I kind of know you. No, I don't know you at all. Like I get that now. Usually these, you know, somebody comes up to me, it's really brief. Like it's not like I can think too hard about it because somebody, or especially this happened at my reading in Boston and it was the weekend of the marathon. It was the Friday before the marathon, I think. And there was a line. So I couldn't like, (laughs) this woman is crying in front of me and I didn't want to short shift her. But at the same time, there were like, 10 people waiting to get their book signed. So what I usually do is I acknowledge it and say, listen, you know, I'm sorry I made you cry, but I'm glad you liked my book. And then sometimes I'll just ask them one question about themselves. Like for this woman who was crying at Boston, I said, she said she was a charity runner. I asked her about her charity and how much she raised and told her how wonderful that was. And I'm not lying. I think that was fantastic. She raised like $15,000 or something. It was a very high amount. And I told her, don't let anybody tell you you don't belong here. And then that was it. Um, but usually most people just want to say, hi, I really like your work. Thank you so much for what you do. And that's it. So that's it. Usually it's very it's very short. Um, I had a weird incident where someone recognized me at the gym and I was trying to lift weights and they were bothering me and I had to tell them to stop. So... <laughs> I, I just, it's one of those things where I don't think, like, I worry, I worry about people taking pictures of me when I'm running because, you know, when we run, we look awful. Um, but it's fair game, I guess. But, you know, most people are really nice about it. They just seem really happy to to say hi and say something nice. And I, I can't, I can't say anything bad about that. I ran the New York City Marathon with my mother. It was her first marathon ever. We did uh, the organized 18-mile training run together and i don't think it was until that moment that my mom realized how many people read my column <laughs> cuz people kept because it was a loop and because you you know we were running at my mom's pace which is significantly slower than mine nothing wrong with that people were lapping us and they were coming up and talking to us and talking to her like they knew her which i think surprised her because she was the subject of of several columns that i wrote even though she didn't write them herself and then in the marathon people kept running past us and, like, turning around and saying hi and thumbs up and good job, Mary and Jen, like, that sort of stuff. So that was really cool. She thought that was pretty neat.
0: I'll tell you, it was wonderful how you chronicles her her running transformation, you know, and, and all the things that went into that marathon for her. And I thought one of the, the – shoot, there's so many amazing parts to that. But one of the things for me that kind of left an indelible mark was just knowing that your mom wasn't allowed to run in high school because it was basically when she finished up, it was the year before – Title Nine. It was the year
1: that – it was the month it was enacted. It was oh. that month.
0: Okay. So obviously that had a tangible effect on her life. And I want to talk about her in a second. But oh, no. how did that ruling <laughs> – well, how how did that ruling and her being kept away from running, do you think that had any tangible effect on you and your athletics and your running? Did that get passed down at all?
1: Um, hmm. Well, it's part of the thing about writing about my mom is I don't want to speak for her. And, you know, there was this, this question of whether I would write a book about training with my mom. And I said, absolutely not, because that's her life. That's her privacy. I'm not doing that to her. Um, I grew up playing sports all the time. And it wasn't until my mom started running in 2013. I wrote a piece for ESPNW in advance of the Olympic marathon trials where I wrote about that's the first time I I connected the dots that my mom wasn't allowed to run in high school because we actually went and got her yearbook and looked at the photos of all the teams and there were no women anywhere in track, cross country, blah, blah, blah. And that's when I put everything together. And I thought, holy shit, like how does, what a different existence she had for lack of a better term. Um, Than I did, and you know, and I went to college. My mom didn't finish college. I went to college. I went to graduate school. It's just sort of thinking, sitting there and thinking of all the chances that I had. Even though you know, this is sort of a you know, I've confronted blatant sexism and misogyny and all that sort of stuff. I still, I still went further than she was ever able to go, just because of the time I was born, and part of that too was having her as my mom, because she, again, I don't want to speak for her, but she encouraged me to do these things. Um and it yeah, it's it's I first realized it in twenty sixteen and then running with her, especially because it went so well for her. I mean, she had no problems. Nothing went wrong, which made for an incredibly boring marathon. <laughs> and I didn't know what to write, but I was so happy that it was like maybe all of this happened for this reason to come to this day. I don't know. It was just a beautiful day. And it was beautiful weather so that helped too, but it was a beautiful experience.
0: So you bring up a funny point there, but it's borne out in terms of your writing career as well, is that it seems like all the things that maybe if you could turn back time that you would try to remove, like different injuries and things like that, those are also the things that seem to really been, you know, fodder for some of the, the, maybe your best writing and things that keep people interested, not only in the sport, but you personally, and, you know, kind of helped you level up as time has gone by. So, you know, I think there's a lot of truth in what you just said in terms of it was, you know, fantastically normal and therefore, you know, pretty boring.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would like to give my stress fracture back. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> but uh, for those who don't, I got I got diagnosed with a tibial stress fracture um, about a year ago, actually. And I would like to not have to go through that again. Um, but I wrote about it because what was I going to do? Like not write about it? Um my aunt was so worried that they were going to take the column away from me because I got hurt. And I said, "No, injury's part of the sport. I'm going to have plenty to write about." And that ended up being true.
0: Yeah, and that's something that, you know, as you well know, it, it happens to so many people and it's one of those things where the universality of injuries for some reason never hits home when we're dealing with our own injuries. That we always seem like, how can I possibly get through this? This is something that's so unique. I don't know how I'm going to get, you know, kind of get to this next level. I don't know if I'm going to be able to return to running. And it seems like we all kind of reinvent the wheel mentally when we get injured, especially, especially if we have a significant injury, despite the fact that it is commonplace amongst runners, if not runners that we might be even intimately familiar with.
1: Yeah. I mean, I put out a call in the column for people to send me photos of their walking boots. And I was flooded with responses, which I thought, oh, okay. Like this isn't new in the universe. Um, There is a group called the Injured Athletes Club, which is on Facebook. There's a book and they have a podcast too. And if you're hurt, I really recommend seeking them out.
0: They're Um, great. Uh, Their book, I have their book. It's fantastic. And I listen to their podcast all the time.
1: I was just on it. So you should have them on. Um, But it's just a community of people who he keeps seeing the same things and themes over and over and over again. And for me to, you know, I had, I had a significant injury. This is not my first significant injury, but it'd been a while between the two. And, um, just writing about it, I guess for a lot of people put, you know, a face to it and somebody who's actually willing to say this blows. I mean, I didn't say it like that because it's the New York times. They won't let me print the word fast hole. So they weren't going to let me say this blows, but You know, I've been writing, I'm 39 years old. I published my first personal essay when I was 18. I'd like to think I've developed a skill in being able to put these feelings into a form that people can understand. Um, And that's not like creativity woo-woo, that's just craft. So I took this injury and my feelings and angst about not being able to run and decided, well, I'm going to write about it in a way that people can, like I want someone to take this column and share it with someone who doesn't understand why they're so upset about being hurt. And I want that other person to be able to understand what's going on. Does that make sense?
0: yeah, absolutely and i was I've had many injuries in my life and had ankle reconstructive surgery and all of this stuff so I'm you know not only am I not only do I understand because you explained it well but I've lived it as well and it it's it one of those things where um you, know, you hope no one goes through it but then when they go through it, you want to let them know like there's a way out here. You know what I mean? Don't get too far into your own head and and you'll, you'll, you'll be able to find your way out. And when you have basically, you know, just to touch on another topic is you, so you are running basically a freelance writer who focuses on running. And I love that you almost get meta with this because not only do you do that, but then you also write about, you freelance write about freelance <laughs> writing about running. So it's, it's, it's very interesting over the past several months people don't follow you on Twitter. You know, you've had, you know, you kind of battles with, you know, state Senate, you know, around, you know, freelancing bills, potential freelancing bills, and one that was similarly written out in California as well. And I don't want to get into that. But I do want to talk about just freelancing in general, because a large portion of my audience either works for themselves in some capacity and or wants to do that. So with that in mind, what are just some skills that you've honed over time that allow you to work you know, in a freelancing role and kind of you know, take that mantle and run with it as opposed to not being crippled by you know, the fear or the resistance, as Stephen Pressfield would say, uh, that can kind of accompany these sorts of um, professions and initiatives?
1: Well, sure. So I've been a full-time freelance writer for 15 years now. Um, And most people know me that, yes, I write about running. However, that makes up about 20% of my business now. Um, Most of the work that I do is writing about technology, which most people don't know. Um, So I write about healthcare technology. I write about virtual reality, internet of things, AI. I've written lots of stuff about AI, read books about AI. Um, But I also write about science. Um, I write for a, a, a lab down in Florida, a research institution in Kansas City. Um, I write for Brown's Medical School. I write for Princeton's Engineering College. I write for Michigan Tech. Like I, I do a lot of stuff that is very important to a very small group of people. Um, and for that, I am paid very well. Um, running, I like writing about it. I've loved writing about it. I would not, you know, lots of people want to write about running. A lot of people don't necessarily want to write about how MRI machines can be hacked (laughs) or know how to. So um, last year was my best freelancing year ever. I made over $135,000 and I love writing for the New York Times. It's wonderful. It's great, but that's not where most of my income comes from. Um, And I say this because I wrote a piece. I write a, a infrequent newsletter about freelance writing called notes from a hired pen. And I wrote a whole thing about how I broke through six-figure freelancing. And I also say this because I'm also hustling is that I wrote a a white paper about how I did it. Um, People ask me what a white paper is, sort of a how-to, a guide. It's 9,000 words. It costs $10 um, because people ask me about freelancing all the time. And I don't have the capacity to answer every single person who emails me wanting me to tell them my life story. And about how to make freelancing work. So I just, between Christmas and New Year's, spent three days and wrote this whole thing. Um, I know I'm rambling again. But um, I think the way to look at it is, you know, there's a lot of people who want writers to feel like we should thank them for publishing our work. We should be thankful that they decide to give us a few pennies for our work. And that's bullshit. This is a a product. I mean – I know people get mad at me for saying this and treating it like a widget, but it's a widget. New York times needed someone to write about running. I have a skill. I write about it and it's great. Um, But you know, it's work. This is a career. This is, this is a craft. I see myself as a craftsman, not necessarily a creative person, although I certainly think I'm that too. And I work with people who need good writers pay well and pay on time because otherwise why would I put up with them? Um, My father has worked in the construction industry for more than 40 years and I've learned a lot from him because I learned about how they evaluate clients. They were offered um, a very large project. I'm just going to say that because I don't want to break news here. And um, it would have been a landmark project, huge publicity, huge deal. And they turned it down because they knew that the company – treated other people like crap because they didn't think it was worth it just for the recognition of having built X building. And that's sort of how I treat my business. Like, you know, I get P- I just had three people this week, email me wanting me to write for free. And I told them to, to pound sand in a much nicer way. Um, you know, this is, this is, this is value. People make money off of our writing. We should be paid accordingly for it. If you're going to treat me like shit out the door. Um, I curse a lot. I'm Italian. I'm from New Jersey. What do you want me to say? So, um, yeah, I think that's that's the attitude. I think more writers need to have is you want to be treated like a like the professional that you are, and if they're not treating you like that, don't waste your time with them.
0: I love this craftsman as opposed to the craftsman wording as opposed to just the you know the creator or you know creative. You know, obviously they're not mutually exclusive, but I love that idea of that because it does put into practice. The practice of running, I've been mean running, of writing, of you know, this is not something you know. Hey, when the you know, when the, when the moon is right, you know, put pen to paper and 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 draft you know the next great thing.
1: Yeah, I got a mortgage, man. <laughs> you know, I a lot of times, and and this is at one because I've taught this. I I actually went to Colorado in August to teach like a three day boot camp on freelancing, and I've taught at colleges. You know, if your plumber wouldn't put up with it, why would you? And people are like, well, that's plumbing. And I said, well, what's the difference other than you don't get your hands wet? Like, it's still a job. You know, I'm I'm not going to do – you know, my plumber is not going to work on my bathroom hoping that somebody will see his work and then hire him down the road. Like, that's bullshit. It just is. And, you know, treating freelance writing like a business, which it is, a business of one, although my dog, you know, she's here, but she doesn't get paid, Um you know, it changed my my view of how this should work. And when I was younger, I used to do work for I used to write for this magazine. I'm not gonna name it. It's not a national publication, but it's a fairly large publication where the editor was nasty, mean, he would write me notes on my stories that were longer than the stories themselves. It would keep me up at night and not in a fun way. And um so I fired him and I, I mean at the time they were making up about $15,000 of business for me a year and I just I couldn't take it anymore and when I reinvested that time I would have spent worrying and answering his stupid questions and being treated like shit. I got much better clients and my business took off so you know that's that's a decision that businesses make every day. If a client's being terrible with you you just fire him and move on and once I did that you know things things got much better.
0: I love that "what if" because it's taking, it's flipping the "what if" on its head. Instead of saying "what if I do this and things don't pick up and I just lost fifteen thousand dollars," you can flip it and say, "Yeah, well, what if I fire this client and things right. go better?" And what right. happens? Like then? if you're
1: not investing all of that time and emotional energy in someone who treats you like dirt. I went out and found somebody who didn't, and there's st- that the client that I replaced him with is still a client. And guess what? They pay every two weeks. Like it's just, you know, there's so many opportunities for writers out there. You have to look beyond like the the magazine rack or you know, big internet companies or whatever you want to do it. But there are people out there who are just dying for writers like you. You just have to find them. And that's very tedious sometimes. It takes time. I try to find them when I'm watching like a movie on my iPad, um, you know, but it can work out once it hits really well. And, you know, I never expected to make this much money as a freelance writer, but I think it's fabulous. And I'm definitely not the only person. I have people in my, you know, sort of master freelance group that's private and know you can't join it. They all make more money than me. <laughs> that's fine. You know, I have good role models and good mentors, and that's why I try to help people out too. Um, I have a a people who I mentor, and it's not that you can't hire me to do it. They're just people that I like and want to help out. But that's also why I write this newsletter and I wrote this white paper so I can help out more people. Um, You know, I just want to make back my costs with the white paper. That's it. I don't expect to make a ton of money because I hired a copy editor and a designer. I just want to make my money back. But you know, if somebody asks me, "Hey, how do you do it?" Well, here you go pay me 10 dollars please
0: <laughs> well you said a lot in this in this uh episode first of all thank you very much i've been a fan of yours for a long time and with all of that being said if someone wants to learn more either about you personally those you know your various newsletters this book which is fantastic where is it where where should they go
1: they should go to jenamiller.com j e n a millerlikethebeer.com um you will see uh links to soon by the time this comes out it'll be up um the newsletter which is called notes from a hired pen and the white paper which is also called notes from a hired pen and then assorted words after that um you can follow me on twitter it's twitter.com uh back well of course uh my twitter handle is jen is (laughs) by jen a miller by jen a miller like my byline by jen a miller and those are probably the two best places to go wonderful thank you so much jen all right well thank you
0: Thank you, Jen, for coming on the show. I told you this podcast was good. I loved this for so many reasons. You know, shoot, man. I just love talking not only the running side, but the working for yourself side. That, for me, is also pretty fascinating. And when you can combine the two, man, I just love that so much. Thank you so much to our sponsors today, Nutso, Koros, and PreveneX. I love these guys. Nutso, I had it for breakfast this morning. I had the Nutso peanut butter on toast. I loved it. I have Prevenex every day from a supplement perspective, and I'm wearing my Coros watch as I'm recording this. So go check them out at nutso.com, coros.com, and prevenex.com as well. Thank you for sharing, for rating, and reviewing this podcast. It means so much to me. Also, a heads up, couple things. First of all, Road to the Olympic Trials twice a week in February and March. So if you haven't subscribed, head over there. We're, gonna, we're doing the, the uh, preview episodes for the Olympic Trials in February, and then we're going to do the recaps in March. So yesterday I released the um, preview episode with Roberta Groner, and it was awesome. I mean, every episode with Roberta Groner is awesome. So this one was exactly that as well. Also, head over to the Rambling Runner dot com to sign up for our newsletter just put out the first one on saturday really enjoyed it had a lot of good nutrition tips from kelsey Chapel, uh, a 253 marathoner and registered dietitian. we're going to be following that up with plenty more good stuff probably putting that out i'm guessing twice a month so it'll be regular but not every week but i'm only going to put it out if there's good stuff in there and that's the goal so again thank you so much for listening and happy running enterprising in my surroundings i'm finding the quietest of states these days This representation of storm brewing I'm amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change i'm trying to show this industry